The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're getting close to the end of our winter course. We've been studying the four divine abodes or the four Brahma Viharas, these beautiful attitudes of love that the Buddha taught about. Metta or loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative joy or sympathetic joy, gladness, and then upekka, equanimity. And equanimity is a really important teaching in the Dharma and the Buddhist teachings. And it's taught, it's described in different ways, including this way that we're looking at this winter is one of the four divine abodes, one of the four attitudes of love. But that it can arise in different ways. But maybe before I start, I'll just see if there are any questions about how one, how we can meditate. And you know, we've been using this sheet that I uh, included the first few weeks with the four stages of metta practice where we learn, and you can do this all day long, not just in your formal meditation practice, but how can I arouse that attitude, that emotion of equanimity? And remember, try, <laughs> you know, it's like experiment. There's that takes a little bit of uh, willingness to just try to bring it to mind. And like what images, like the smile of the Buddha, you know, if you've seen a statue of the Buddha and that serene, balanced smile is, uh, yeah, just sort of supportive of remembering that possibility. But we have to experiment with arousing it. And then once it's arisen, I mean, excuse me, once you've aroused it, then to notice the expansive nature of equanimity, the inclusive nature the radiant nature. So that's actually the object that you're keeping in mind, like that it has this organic nature to include. So even though we maybe experienced equanimity when we were all comfortable on our couch and we had finished our busy day and we had a nice meal and we have some hours before us with no responsibilities and we feel some equanimity, but then if we notice that balance and that not needing things to be different, but then notice that it can spread. Even though as I bring other things to mind, I imagine the bigger world that I'm part of, clearly not everybody is comfortable. <laughs> but we can have that radiant balance like, oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. Conditions are unfolding due to so many causes and conditions. And there are people who are really suffering and there are people who are really happy. And in this moment, is there a heart that can hold it all without having to be in denial? And you know, it's sort of, it feels sometimes that I don't want to expand because I'm going to ruin my good feeling when I bring more and more of the world, more and more beings to mind. 
But that's how we develop the practice. Until it's boundless, that's the third quality we're developing. And then the fourth is dropping the doing. Really discovering that equanimity when it's developed, when it's seen clearly, it has its own feedback, its own way of self-generating itself. All these qualities of love do. And so we can abide, we can rest. Because all of these qualities of love that we've been studying this winter, it always sounds a little funny to say it this way, but it's it's more about what's not there than what is there. So it's more about the, in terms of equanimity, more about the absence of reactivity, the absence of expectations, the absence of trying to make something happen. In a way, the heart, the mind is aligning with nature. So we have a question here from Megan. Uh, On the dance of compassion and equanimity, when encountering a being that is suffering greatly. Yeah, in a way, it's this is the uh, probably one of the reasons why why equanimity is included in these four divine abodes. It's not just compassion, but mudita, appreciative joy, even the basic friendliness and goodness of metta. There's really none of this classical expressions of love without equanimity. I mean, imagine compassion without equanimity. Then, and we talked about this when we were looking at compassion, then there would be a real agenda like, I'm not okay with your suffering. And it's not so much, that's not the same as saying, I deeply desire to do whatever I can do to alleviate your suffering. But that I'm not okay with your suffering is sort of an affront. It's It comes from this idea that suffering doesn't belong. Pain doesn't belong. Terrible things don't belong. But see, that's what that does is it, um, well, it's just, I mean, just simply, it's a contraction in the moment. So, I, I sometimes, uh, when I'm counseling somebody who's in a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and uh, I need to for my own health and well-being, and I think it seems to be able to be useful for the other person, I need to be grounded in equanimity, this radiant balance. And the thing is, the radiant balance feels really good and in a funny way, solid, like grounded. And so when I'm in that place and interacting with the person in that place, I might at times seem like, oh, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling pretty balanced. How could I possibly be helpful? Or the person's going to feel like I'm not really showing up for them because I'm not in the same place they are with their difficult situation. But what I find in those interactions is that my presence seems to have been helpful. And uh, so I've learned, even though initially it didn't 
you know, I did have some doubt about whether that was a helpful way to show up when someone was really hurting. And I think it's it's for us to 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 deeply reflect on and experiment with. But even intellectually, I think it makes sense. When I'm suffering because somebody else is suffering, I'm not really helping them. My suffering isn't contributing to their suffering going away. And if anything, it's just another burden for them to know that their suffering is causing me suffering or causing somebody else suffering. And on the, on the other hand, when somebody is showing up with a lot of balance, so let's just think of the worst situation. Somebody is really hurting and really reacting to the suffering, right? So they're, they're lamenting, they're beating their breasts, they're really struggling, maybe in unproductive ways with their own pain. And we show up and we're doing the best we can and we're relying on our capacity, the heart's capacity, to be equanimous, to know that conditions are the way that they are, and this heart knows how to be at ease and to wish ease no matter the conditions, not knowing whether the conditions are going to get worse for that person or better, or the conditions for me being around that person are going to get worse or better, but this great confidence born of experience that this heart can be at ease. That there is this capacity to be at ease with conditions, no matter the conditions. And the thing about however well we're able to do that as we interact, show up for this person, if nothing else, in a little way, we're modeling being at ease in a difficult situation not pushed around by the pleasantness or unpleasantness, the uncertainty or whatever that's moving here in this moment. And that's exactly what the other person has to, in their own life, they have to figure out this capacity to be at ease no matter the conditions. Yeah. And like I said, uh, Megan just added a little bit more uh, just to me in the chat. Um, very helpful, especially exploring the belief that suffering doesn't belong and compassion as equanimous presence. Yeah, and that last piece, um, compassion, like to really, especially in these more challenging moments, to really call on that ground of equanimity, that Radiant balance. Radiant in the sense of like really sensitive. So that that's really the radiance. When we use that word radiance, it is the sensitivity. And the ground, the sort of vast ground of equanimity, the cool ground of equanimity really allows us to be fearlessly close and engaged and interacting um, yeah, thanks, Megan. Any other questions about, and specifically about the um, practice that when we're sitting or walking and we want to do a more formal contemplation with equanimity, um, any questions about that? 
Yeah, and uh, Fred uh, put a, a note in, you can see in the chat. Yeah, um, is it Ellie? I think it's Ellie. Uh, maybe somebody remember Ellie's last name. It begins with an H, I believe. She was in Amsterdam during the Nazi occupation and then eventually died in... Uh, yeah, there we go. Thanks, Farron. Um, in one of the concentration camps that wrote beautifully about holding the horror of what was going on. She was a pretty young woman, I believe, um, but but found ways to be balanced and even quite alive, but not in denial about the horror that was happening around her and to her. Any other questions before I go on with the talk about doing equanimity practice, about the way we did it tonight? As you're, I hope, learning, it's really a creative endeavor. And for each of the four Brahma Viharas, we have this strong um, conviction that I'm going to find out, I'm going to figure out, rather, how to uncover this capacity for metta, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, and then how to keep it in mind so it can grow in the heart. So something from Marianne. <clears throat> Someone who fights ease and closeness with me, how can I continue to be at ease and unafraid and keep being the way I want to be? Yeah, but, you know, with any condition we encounter in another person or in the wider world, it's a little bit what Megan was saying. It's like, we need to make space for suffering. So, can it be okay that that person is that way? Equanimity um, really relates to living without expectations. You know, part of the understanding of the lawfulness of the moment is this uh, phrase from Sylvia Borstein, you know, that things can't be other than the way they are. Things are breathtakingly, this is in Sylvia's book on the Paramis, Sylvia Borstein's book, they, um, things are breathtakingly the only way they can be. My heart opens with equanimity or my heart opens with compassion and equanimity or something like that. But just that, like, it's that why seeing that things can't be other than they are. Why would my mind wrongly conclude it shouldn't be this way? It's okay for the mind to realize, you know, I don't like what's going on. You know, I don't want things to be this way. But our understanding should be, of course things are this way. You know how I know? Because this is the experience right here and now, of course. And if it's showing up like this now, then it's lawful. It's the only way for things to show up because there were supporting causes and conditions for the world to be this way. You know, we might think, like with the possible war in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe, uh, we might think that it shouldn't be like this. You know, we've. I thought we grew out of that sort of stupidity of going to war. And uh, 
but things are the way that they are, and there are lawful causes behind the way things are. So how am I going to live my life? Am I going to cultivate a heart that knows how to be real, and knows how to be close, and knows how to <clears throat> include the way it is? Or do I want to cultivate a heart that's in denial, that needs to be in denial, because I somehow have a strong feeling that I don't want it to be this way, or I wish it weren't this way. And that's the thing about the Dharma, it's fundamentally realistic. It's not optimistic, it's not pessimistic, it's realistic. Good. Well, I'll say a few more things then about equanimity, and I'll save some time at the end for comments and questions too. I can't often uh, catch the comments when I'm uh, giving a talk, So, uh, but feel free to put them in, but you might have to remind me at the end that they're there. Um, I don't know if people have read Gil Fransdell's book, The, the Buddha Before Buddhism. And Gil Fransdell, a wonderful teacher from the West Coast, um, he's also a scholar besides being a Dharma teacher. And uh, he translated some of the texts from the Buddha, some of the verses that are considered um, pretty much in the Buddha's voice. Because even at the time of the Buddha, some of the discourses refer to this discourse. So that's... Uh, it gives the Buddhist scholars some confidence that this wasn't a later rendition or interpretation of the Buddhist teachings. And uh, at the beginning of the book, Gil distills some of the central teachings that scholars sense are really coming from this historic person. Not fixing on views, like this is what the Buddha is telling us, teaching us students of the Buddha. Don't get attached to views. That makes a lot of sense to me. Non-dependence on sense experience. Okay, so we need to live our life, which is a sensory life, right? We're living in sensuality, but we want to live with our food and our treats and the difficulties and the painful aging bodies without dependence on sense experience. So that's a a bit of a setup, but interesting, like how to be a sensory being, a sensitive being, without dependence on sensuality. That was the second point that he distilled from these early teachings. And then the last two, <clears throat> one of the things the Buddha talked about is that a sage or a wise person, someone who's developed some real wisdom, is somebody like the basic definition the Buddha gave over and over again for a wise person is somebody who's peaceful with conditions of their life, or peaceful with the conditions in the moment. And not surprisingly then, the fourth point, distillation from Gill, is that the path is the practice of being peaceful with conditions, or you could say being equanimous with conditions. So in this way, equanimity is both uh, very much related to the practice, but it's also related to the fruit of practice.
And uh, I made a copy of uh, a teaching from Sharon Salzberg's book. I think it's a wonderful book, by the way, A Heart as Wide as the World. It was one of Sharon's earlier books, so it's quite a while ago that they wrote it. And uh, and Sharon is just talking about her early years in India. And I don't know if people remember these stories about Sharon. They're great. Um, but I think she was a freshman or a sophomore, and she started college pretty young, you know, like as a 17-year-old. So I think they might have been, Sharon might have been only 18, and it was the end of her first year, I believe, but it might have been sophomore year. And Trumpa Rinpoche, who was a very famous Tibetan uh, teacher, um, Lama, happened to be touring around giving talks. This is probably at the very end of the 60s or maybe 1970. And happened to go, I think, uh, State University of Buffalo or one of the state universities in New York State where Sharon was a freshman or sophomore. And he was just answering questions. And Sharon's question that she had written out, put in the bowl with everybody else, was the first one. And Sharon said, uh, her question said something like, I'm going to leave school for a year and go to India and study meditation. Who should I study with? <laughs> and he had this great response. Um, something like, and this sort of thing, it's best to leave it to the pretense of chance. <laughs> which I think is a little teaching on equanimity. Um, so she went to India as a young woman who had a lot of difficulty and loss in her life. You can read her wonderful book called Faith if you want a little bit of Sharon's biography um, and, her, and just the learning that came from that difficult life. But anyway, she noticed, like a lot of us noticed, that it wasn't easy to sit for hours and hours and hours and her body really hurt and had a lot of bodily pain. Um, and so this is what she wrote. And again, it's in her book, A Heart as Wide as the World. Meditation practice is a powerful tool for revealing con our conditioned reactions to unpleasant experiences, allowing us to penetrate to the very depth. Opening to painful experiences does not mean a passive acceptance of pain. Rather, we learn to go to the heart of each moment's experience, even if it's painful, because there, unclouded by conditioning, we discover our lives. Now, in the wider picture of equanimity, right, going to the center of the pain means just showing up one moment at a time, not presuming we need some kind of defense. But really, it's this radiant balance. And, it, you know, one way to verbalize that radiant ba balance is now things are like this, the only way they can be. And my choice is to stressfully become numb or disconnected or to simply remain open and be willing to feel what I feel. And that's really goes right to the heart of equanimity. It's realizing I don't have to be afraid of being touched by what's coming and going. That's the balance. And even when we lose our balance, Sharon has another image, not in this uh, chapter, but somewhere else in a talk or in a book, 
she talks about, you know, we're always on a tightrope and things are, experiences are coming at us, pleasant experiences, unpleasant, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, right? These are the so-called vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds in the Buddhist tradition. They're coming at us and every once in a while we don't have a lot of wisdom or equanimity and we lose our balance. But we always land on another tightrope. <laughs> there we are again, you know, with stuff happening, coming and going, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And if we highlight this capacity for equanimity, we might actually get good at staying on the tightrope in this balance. So let me read a little bit more from this. She's talking about physical pain. Right? She said, it doesn't mean a passive acceptance of pain. Rather, we learn to go to the heart of each moment's experience, even if it's painful, because there, unclouded by conditioning, we discover our lives. The effort to push away what is unpleasant, the tendency to project pain into the future, and then to feel overcome by it, the interpretations we add to it, all keep us from having a personal, direct, an intimate acquaintance with what we're actually experiencing. So when we observe something like pain directly, we come to see it as its see its actual nature. Like everything else, pain is a changing phenomenon with no inherent substance. When we say it's no inherent substance, what we mean is pain like everything else is in motion. Like when we're feeling sensation, any sensation, you know, you can touch the cushion or the chair or your leg now, and we think wrongly that touch is a thing, like a noun. <laughs> but touch isn't a thing. It's a river. It's a flow. And things that are in motion aren't really much of anything. And this is true with even the most intense physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. And it, this is what really allows for equanimity to deepen is when what makes something unbearable, whatever the initial you know experience of pain is, what makes pain unbearable is the idea, the wrong idea, that it's a something, as opposed to what it actually is. It's an experience being known. And experience is always a river. It's always in motion. I'm not, nobody is saying that the pain might not be getting more intense. It might, or it might be diminishing. But it's not a static, fixed entity. But because the mind wrongly thinks that difficulty is that, then it it makes sense to the mind to resist it because we imagine pain is some solid edifice or difficulty. Now, I don't want, you know, it isn't a matter of some philosophical, it's really a matter of philosophical discussion, it's really a matter of just experimenting. And remember in this sort of thing, it's better to experiment initially with the pains that are relatively not overwhelming. 
and really build our confidence. You're a little cold, right? And then, you, oh yeah, I'm practicing equanimity. I'm practicing this superpower of radiant balance, no matter the conditions. So we we uh, remember that equanimity allows us to be close with everything, including being cold. And then there's not just the cold temperature, whatever that direct immediate experience in the body is, there's also all of our ideas, like, this is going to kill me, <laughs> whatever we might think about being called, you know, or this is stupid. And, and like, when we experiment, we're really learning how that, that wholesome and pleasant, inner pleasant quality of equanimity can hold that, can include everything doesn't need to be confused by any of that. So Sharon then writes, Eventually I found that my legs relaxed, my knees reached the floor, I could sit for long periods of time with no pain, yet I was, in fact, yet I was, in fact, released from my terrible fear of pain long before then, when I saw through the seeming solidity of the pain, rather than viewing it as a monolithic entity taking over my body, I saw the pain as a kaleidoscopic world of ever-shifting sensations, tingling, tightness, heat, throbbing, and a thousand other qualities of sensation. These were what I had been lumping together and calling pain, she puts in quotes. By seeing these component parts, all in essence coreless and ephemeral, I finally learned to explore the texture of pain rather than feeling crushed by it. Now let me give you another example, and it, it maybe relates a little bit to Megan, who um, I think it's okay to share, has been doing a lot of palliative care as an MD doctor, and so dealing with people, obviously, um, some of them at least in really difficult circumstances. So I, you know, I can bring to mind being with people in really difficult circumstances, and when the heart has this capacity for equanimity, then the heart also has this capacity to be really intimate and close. And like Sharon is saying, the whole moment comes alive. Our bodily sensations, the sense of the other person there, the space of the room, the love in the room, the intimacy of the room. I'm guessing some of you know this experience where, and even though the context might be that somebody is really suffering, really doesn't like their experience, is really afraid, or whatever it might be. Our subjective experience is that the moment is beautifully alive. And that the beauty and goodness or wholesomeness of that really provides that counterweight for the heart to be intimate with the suffering that this person is experiencing. We need that confidence in the beauty and wholeness of the moment to be, ha to be able to have an honest and intimate sense this person is really hurting. They don't want the conditions. My... Uh, 
I can't give away my well-being or my safety or my perspective, right? Because that would be somehow, um, yeah, just like wanting to be a god or something like that. You know, we can snap our fingers and take away someone's pain. But we can show up. And that and that that's what I was saying earlier, you know, it it's really something to be able to be in a difficult place but to remain balanced. It's a gift all around to offer that, to be able to offer that to anybody. And what really allows us to do that is that in that in those moments we're going to be having uh, strong reactions, you know, because they're conditioned into the mind, like, I'm really afraid of your pain, or something like that, or I really don't want this to be happening to you. But part of what equanimity knows is that liking and not liking, you know, those different two sides of the same coin of reaction, not wanting the moment to be the way it is, that that's just what that is. We don't have to be confused by the liking or disliking or by the strong reactions. We don't have to suppress reactivity. I notice in uh, certain situations like that, I'll even get that that reflex. Like if I'm in a hospital setting and and there's just you know whatever a lot of blood or a lot of uh, yeah just stuff that can evoke that sort of like almost wanting to vomit or throw up and uh, so it doesn't mean that that the sort of bodily reactions that we're immune from them but just that there's space for that too or whatever whatever happens you know the smell in the room is turning our stomach and we have to step out or something like that. So remember, this is really important about equanimity, maybe as much as any of these um, qualities and teachings that the Buddha offers, there can be a desire to imitate it. (laughs) And some of you have heard me say this before, but one of my teachers in the 90s, Michelle McDonald, um, still one of the teachers at IMS and and um, but one toward the end of one of the longer retreats, three month retreats, she said to the whole group, "You know, one of the great things about a long retreat, you get rid of some of your false equanimity, right? Just the pretend equanimity. We become a little bit raw, you know, in a longer retreat. But actually, that's more in the in the direction of equanimity, like a willingness to be real." and not afraid to be real with the conditions. And, you know, we're sort of giving ourselves permission to be real, and it just it doesn't stop there. We give everybody permission to be real. And, and that's such a, an important gift that we can offer. This is from Christina Feldman, uh, one of the elders, one of the founders, really, of uh, 
not the initial founders, but one of the early teachers at IMS and still teaches quite a bit at IMS. And I think uh, Christina founded with others um, Gaia House, which is a big retreat, important retreat center in England. And she writes, Equanimity does not leave kindness, joy, or compassion behind, but is imbued with these qualities which rescue it from indifference or coldness. Like kindness, joy, and compassion, equanimity is not a state, but describes a relational way of being with life that rests upon a profound understanding. And I like this relational way, meaning it's moment to moment to moment. That's why that image of being on a tightrope is really good. It's like it can't be a fixed stance, equanimity. It's something we're rediscovering moment by moment. And that's true with all of these Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes. Kindness is not a fixed stance. Compassion can't be a fixed stance. It has to, in a sense, re-arise moment by moment by moment to be real, to be actual. As soon as it becomes a stance of an, some ego, right, then it's this fragile, brittle thing that has to defend itself because it's, it's really an idea that a mind is clinging to. But compassion, equanimity, these four divine abodes, they're not ideas. It's a way of relating that, like uh, Christina says, it's really grounded in an understanding. And when we arouse metta or arouse equanimity, we notice its expansive well-wishing, how organic and natural it is to be more and more inclusive. We learn how that goes to the nth degree and we really sense and feel that boundless quality. Everything is colored or affected by the kindness, by the love, by the equanimity. And then release the doing and and abide in that state. Remember, it's a natural state. It's more about what isn't there. And so that way of relating is really having teased out fear and teased out the tendency to control, to want to dominate the moment, to want to fix the moment. I like to think about equanimity in particular as, yeah, uh, having a friendly relationship with exposure, like really studying exposure. And I did that during that guided sit. You know, I um, I was practicing, of course, even as I was giving instructions. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot in my life. I mean, I have a pretty nice life, I have to say. But, you know, I have, I feel burdened by my duties and responsibilities for sure at times. And I definitely feel burdened by the state of our world and the injustices and inequalities and suffering of not just humans, but so many creatures and beings on this planet. And uh, it seems like a tall order to say yes to the world as it is. But it's the only, you know, I notice that if I don't do that regularly, then my mind starts getting more and more addicted 
to pleasant sense experiences. You know, we wonder why we need things just the way we want them to be. You know, we need inter- nice entertainments and we need nice food and we and we get tighter and tighter about these things that we know on some level aren't ultimately that important. But all of a sudden we're noticing how tight and stingy and controlling and demanding we are about our conditions or circumstances. And it's because we haven't practiced relaxing and opening and including the world, our relationships, our body, the good and the bad just as it is. And so we're keeping it, you know, like, oh, no, no, I can't let you in. And so the way we distract ourselves is we seek pleasure. So the imbalance, whenever, you know, this is that uh, famous discourse on the second arrow. I don't know if people have read that, but it's a really powerful little teaching. You know, we we tend to think it's just that simple point that when difficult experience comes up, then our, my resisting the difficult experience is another cause for suffering. That is the point, one of the points the Buddha makes. But he he makes this much more subtle and uh, important point that our, we're out of uh, balance with both neutral and pleasant experience, not just unpleasant experience. So we, because we don't know how to be with unpleasant experience, we start having a distorted relationship to pleasant experience because the heart thinks it's more in need of pleasant experience to deal with not knowing what to do with the unpleasant experience in life. Remember, that could be just, unpleasant experience could be just as simple as knowing there are people out there who are suffering. So it isn't even our own direct personal suffering. But because we don't have equanimity with suffering, we start having a more and more distorted relationship with pleasure, all pleasures, fantasies, food, whatever it might be. And because we have this more obsessive relationship to pleasure, we start having a distorted relationship to neutral experience. Like, you're not pleasant, so I don't care about neutral experience. So that this um, basic fear of unpleasant and this basic conclusion that unpleasant experience doesn't belong in in my life, you know. I mean, how do we come up with that conclusion, like bad stuff shouldn't happen to me? Where in life have we learned that? (laughs) But anyway, we do. And so we, we get tight, we want to turn away from what's unpleasant, we go to pleasant experience, become more obsessed and dependent on pleasant experience, and therefore ignore all the neutral. Because neutral experience isn't helping us defend ourselves from unpleasant experience. And so our relationship with the entirety of the sense world gets out of balance. And equanimity is a way of restoring that balance which is, sometimes it's like this. It's like that story I I tell at the intro class about 
the farmer. I know a lot of you have heard it. I'll just say it briefly. But it's just a made-up story. It's not based in history or anything. But um, it's just a teaching story about a farmer who's got a lot of problems in life, tracking down the Buddha to ask for some help. And he just takes some time to tell the Buddha basically to complain about all the things that are hard in his life. Can't count on the weather, all the pests, the farm animals not doing what they're supposed to do, his kids not helping out with the 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 chores on the farm and on and on and on. And the Buddha sort of listens compassionately and says, well, I think everyone just has 83 problems. Nothing really you can do about that. So he's basically saying, yeah, that's the way it is. When you have a body, when you have life, when you want to survive, there are problems. 83 of them, matter of fact. And uh, even if you figured out one, how to solve one, you'd probably get another one anyway. And so, of course, the farmer marches off like, I thought you were going to be able to help me and you didn't have anything to say. Kind of storms off. And just before he's out of earshot, the Buddha says to him, even though I can't help you with your 83 problems, I can help you with your 84th problem, which is not liking having 83 problems. Thinking that the exposure to the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, or, you know, the ups and downs, the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows in life, thinking that it shouldn't be this way. And remember, equanimity doesn't mean that we don't get involved and try to make things better. It just means we put balance first. We trust that balance, that evenness, because it allows us to be close. And then if there is something to do, we can do it because we're close. We're more intimate. We're more sensitive. We're not afraid of the exposure. That's kind of the definition of that balance, is the balance doesn't come I mean, there is an initial equanimity we get when we can remove ourselves from what's threatening and what's provocative and what's stimulating. And then we get a kind of equanimity that's based on the experience or the conditions, circumstances. But that's not the deeper equanimity. The deeper equanimity really comes from this wisdom love that has learned not to be afraid of exposure. And that's what we like to see, you know, when we think about someone who's saintly, and maybe some of you have examples of this in your life, you know, we'll have small groups next week for our last week, and you might just share if maybe you were that person, or maybe you know somebody who just manifested this radiant balance, even in the middle of a real mess, a real difficult situation. But I want to save a little time, we have about 10 minutes left to see if there are any questions. And uh, I'll start with uh, Alyssa's question here, or comment. She writes in the chat, In practicing equanimity, especially in an area where I'm feeling suffering, I fear that my equanimity will veer into delusion. Seems like a fine line between delusion and the expansive nature of equanimity. I have a deep fear of stumbling into delusion. 
attempting to practice equanimity, how do I decipher between the two? Well, it's, you know, the whole um, way that we understand the development of our practice has to be grounded in these very pragmatic ways, like how am I living my life? How I, how am I in my relationships? So when we practice abiding in that expansive quality of equanimity, we're not expecting to deal with a crying child or, you know, a difficult relationship or, you know, some of the ordinary difficult times in life in that refined, boundless expression of equanimity. But we are interested to see if we're handling those ordinary challenging places with more resilience and more balance and more nimbleness and more lightness and more creativity and more tenderness. And that's how we see the value is that I'm the, the sort of how I show up in the world is being transformed. In a way, the, the way to think about the deeper meditative states, like that, those states of emptiness and those profound states of peace and those profound states of balance, it's more like a powerful therapy session, but it changes us going forward. You know, it's like, the wiring is getting reworked. When when we're in that place of boundless love, boundless equanimity, and we're really seeing how trustworthy, how it doesn't even take Mark to do it. It's just its own, like it's beautiful and it's impersonal. It's here and now, but it's not really me. It really changes how we see everything like that self-centered lens, it just doesn't dominate the mind as much as it did in the past. So in the moment, Elisa, the the question is, are your motivations in how you're practicing wholesome? Do you trust them? Do you trust the pleasantness? You can even ask yourself, is there any reason to mistrust what I'm experiencing here and now? And if your mind creates something that scares you, then then you might need to uh, really take a look at that. Like, is there actually anything here to be afraid of or to be concerned about? Do I have any evidence that I'm becoming a less kind, less effective, less skillful human being? And Alyssa, you can unmute yourself if you wanted to add some details to your um, question. Sure, thank you. Um, that's a helpful answer. And I think that when I'm in my day-to-day life in a challenging situation, thinking of with my partner, wanting to practice equanimity, be kinder, be more sensitive in the conversation, I guess I'm calling it delusion, but I... You know, it feels very sometimes fragile. It feels vulnerable and 
these fears of, I don't know, I mean, being taken advantage of or stumbling into just kind of just stumbling into, I guess, I mean, just like if we're in an argument and I feel like he did something that felt like a betrayal. Yeah. And there is evidence, like, I'm afraid of kind of forgiving and that it could happen again. But I want, you know, all the evidence is there that we're working on something. But at the same time, I feel like, oh, I just don't want to be betrayed. And so am I being, um, am I going to be, am I just being really naive to be yeah, like, to yeah. be attempting to be so kind? And, and so I find my, my wheels spinning and, um, I guess that's like a practical thing that I'm really dealing with right now, like in these eight weeks, you know? Yeah. But this is the, this is the thing why it's so important to experiment, especially now that's, you know, just sort of having these intense relationships with partners, you know, that's, that's sort of graduate level practice, but still practice there, but gain more confidence in more ordinary intense experiences because what you'll find, like, you know, your parent, right, Alyssa? Mm -hmm. So with your children, just sort of the ordinary give and take of being a parent. And uh, you might have more confidence of getting into this balanced place. And remember that balanced place is a really nimble place. So you're not coming at this relationship with your child with an idea of how you should be a good parent in this particular situation because that would be a fixed view mm -hmm. but you're having this radiant sensitive exposed but balanced and you're, you're kind of like ready to be a, a sort of a loud forceful parent having a loud forceful parenting moment or a quiet receptive parenting moment you don't know it's going to be birthed out of the exposure of the present moment yeah. So that the equanimity isn't, we have to, and this is partly just how we think of it in English, the term, we have a look of someone who's like, uh, you know, Minnesota nice, you know, like, well, whatever. <laughs> but that's not equanimity. That's That's just like a personality habit. You know, it's like a fixed way of dealing with life. But equanimity is this very vibrant, very alive balance and anything can be born out of that balance so if if in that moment of talking with your partner and you're really hurt and you're feeling like they're not really listening or they're not really getting the point well quite naturally something fierce would be born out of that radiant balance mm -hmm. and you might even be in a sense you as the ego might be whoa <laughs> i said that i did that i spoke that way but but the other thing would but would be that would be recognized as whoa that was good, the aftertaste would feel really good precisely because you didn't do that from a fixed place. It arose because of the intimacy, and that's the thing. That's what helps these uh, intimate relationships is that we can actually be real with each other, and we can't be real when we have a lot of this expectations about like how I'm supposed to be in a relationship or what happens if they don't like me anymore or whatever might kind of no. be clogging it up. 
Equanimity is quite fearless, right? Because we're putting our confidence in that radiant balance, not in any stance of how I should be, what I should say, what I shouldn't say. Right. I see that. But it's scary at first. That's why we want to practice where it's relatively simple. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then just see like what comes out of it. Parenting is actually a great, I mean, it's easy for me to say not having raised kids, but I was a school teacher, so I've got a little experience, but I know it's not really the same. But it seems like it would be a really good, you know, when things are going relatively well as a parent, place to practice equanimity. Because not being equanimous just is such a, going to be such a setup for judgment, judging the kids and judging yourself as a parent. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Alyssa. I think we need to wrap it up here. But like I said, next week we'll have small groups. I did put some articles, including one by Sharon and one by Gil Fronstall and one by another friend and teacher of mine, um, Shala Catherine, on equanimity. Two of them are quite short, so you might want to take a look at those. And if you come across your own resources that you think would be really good, send them to me and I'll include them in next week's email for everyone to take a look at. But the last thing I want to say is really put some time every day, either while walking or sitting or lying down, so in some meditative posture, and just see if you can keep, arouse equanimity and keep it in mind. And really develop that muscle. And that would be a nice thing then to share in the small groups next Monday. It's like, what happens when I can keep equanimity in mind? And related to that is just calling upon it at different times. Like you're about to go into a meeting or whatever, a difficult situation. Then just remembering that the heart is capable of this nimble, radiant balance that allows the heart to be close and exposed and balanced. Call on it and see how it might show up in those more tricky, difficult situations in your life. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.